Welcome to episode 15 of Consensus Unreality. Um, we are joined today by Jason Horsley, uh, who is the author of most recently 16 Maps of Hell, as well as earlier books like Prisoner of Infinity, which we'll get into today as well, and uh, The Vice of Kings, and uh, Seen and Not Seen. Um, so, how are you doing today, Jason? Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Uh, what do I call you? Oh, I'm Ben. Sorry, Ben, ben. and uh, that's Dave. Yeah, I'm Dave. Oh, ben, uh, Dave. Mickey tonight. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like an ice cream company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 not so bad. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so we are. I guess we're having crazy snow here right now. So it's kind of like a. I guess we're probably both in bunker situations, sort of. Well, yeah. you know, at least it feels that way. Bit of a gale. Um, yeah, <laughs> Gail. Um, so, yeah, your new book uh, came out pretty recently. I've got a copy of that. Um, I read the the whole main part of it and have yet to get to the uh, sort of the excised stuff at the end there. But um, right, so you got so you got a physical copy there. I did, yeah. So, you're, but which Ben are you? Because I had quite a few Bens I was inscribing for. I am R. Ben R. Yeah. Uh, can I see the inscription? I mean, there's a yeah. list. Obviously, I'm be able to see it. Yeah. Anything, but uh, I didn't give you anything. Nothing. No personal message in there. Sorry <laughs> about that. That's okay. Got, got pretty tiring <laughs> after a while trying to think of things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. I know the feeling of yeah <laughs> trying to come up with inscriptions. Um. Yeah. So, I yeah the book is really. It sends you into all these different. It's one of it's one of those books that I like where it's uh, you can't always read it straight through because there's so much. It sends you in so many directions, which I think is uh, the mark of a good work of that kind. Um, but maybe we'll get back to that one later. I kind of st- wanted to start by talking about Prisoner of Infinity. Um, mm-hmm. I guess chronologically, and that makes a bit more sense. Um, because I mean, so far in the we've talked about Hollywood on the podcast, um, but we definitely lean more towards uh, talking about like high strangeness stuff and uh, that sort of thing. Um, and I guess Whit- Whitley's experience um, fits the bill, I, I, I guess. Um, yes. So <laughs> let's see. What, what would be a good thing I can phrase as an actual question? Um, what do you think? Uh, Streber's experience is about what do you think um i well i guess that's asking you to summarize an entire book <laughs> that's all right i mean yeah. we could, that's a that's certainly a broad question but yeah it's, it's a reasonable place to start uh particularly as prisoner infinity is an attempt to reframe his experiences to make them not make them but to, to see if they might be about something other than than Strieber himself believes, which is mm. trauma, family patterns, psychological fragmentation, which is mm. in the subtitle of the book. Um, and as you know, if you read the book, this was a, for myself, it was an, a corrective, an attempt at a corrective uh, of an interpretation that I that I'd taken from Strieber whole cloth, really. I took his, mm. his accounts at face value. Sure, yeah. Uh, and found them very compelling and convincing, and I, I thought helpful. 
They were certainly inspiring. I found his work inspiring, communion, transformation, particularly those two, and then the key later on. I found those works very inspiring. Uh, but, well, um, Prisoner Infinity came many years later, and it began in some way that was unexpected and unpredictable to me, which was starting to well the initially and i've said this before but i'll say it again initially the, the the anomaly of streber's spoken voice and his written voice mm. interesting i was just thinking about this today because i was having a discussion about david ike at my blog mm. the, the for and against and i'm i'm as i am in many cases i'm quite liminal i'm i'm not on the fence because i don't like being on the fence but i'm willing to see take both sides with david ike um, but anyway, I, may, I brought it up because I noticed, I mean, there are a lot of people who have been influenced by David Icke, and I'm not one of them. I mean, he never, he never inspired or shaped my worldview, mm-hmm. um, whereas Streber did. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, I knew about Icke pretty, as soon as I knew about him, I, I knew his physical presence and his voice and all that. Um, I don't think I would have liked his books that much anyway, to be honest. But with Streber... Uh, if I'd heard his voice right away, I don't think I would have been influenced by him the way I was because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's something about his way of delivery and his just way of being and his not, not just his personality, but his physical, uh, the affect of his presence that, that I found off putting. Whereas his books, if I'm just reading, one can project an awful lot onto that neutral voice. So mm-hmm. I had this idea of Strieber as this very wise, quite evolved, um, kind of shamanic, very profound individual like a teacher and then when i first heard his voice i was just wait a minute something is wrong here and it was particularly because i heard his his spat his his online spat with daniel pinchbeck Mm. when he when he freaked out with daniel pinchbeck because pinchbeck suggested that the visitors might be not benevolent and streber said that's it you'll never be you're not my friend anymore and kind of acted like a 10 year old and 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 the, it was all there, the charge in his voice and everything. Mm-hmm. He was quite histrionic. So that was the first time I heard Strieber's voice. And it created such cognitive dissonance that it actually it launched me down this rabbit hole of, okay, what's up with Strieber? That's a big anomaly. I want to look more closely at his work. And then I just found this seemingly endless series of anomalies or contradictions. Mm-hmm. And that and mapping those anomalies, which began in 2007, uh, eventually led to prisoner infinity in which i i mapped the anomalies uh to discover i would say a new undiscovered country mm-hmm. uh, which was that of streber's trauma i i believe i mean it's, it's obviously it's presumptuous of me i don't know streber personally but i just found that putting his experiences in the context of trauma uh, the psychology I, I learned about Donald Cowshed, uh, psychological fra- fragmentation, uh, how the psyche splits into different parts, how we manage overwhelming experiences, all of that to me made a new kind of sense of Strieber's work, which didn't disprove a non-human or transcendental element at all, but it, it did sideline it. I was able to actually put it on the side and say, well, we'll, we'll leave that for later. Right. Can 
will the lens of trauma make sense of all of this? And I would say it made sense about 90%. And then I, I left the 10%. Well, okay, there's something more here. I don't know what it is, but um, even yeah. that is somehow being shaped through the lens of trauma in my view. Yeah, I think, I mean, in my reading of it, uh, which I guess was, did that come out a few years ago now, like three years maybe? Uh, Prison of Affinity, yeah, 2018. Oh, so two, two years. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I find it very, very hard to look at it from another angle now, which I think is good. It was convincing in that way. Um, although I do still, yeah, I'm someone who is similarly maybe uh, influenced. I think Dave, you're, you've, I mean, been into Streber as well too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because Streber informs so much of the com the community and communion itself. I think like is an archetype that he created. I think at least visually informs like the the image of the gray, and it's interesting to interrogate these experiences because I think they're just taken at face value a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. I. And I, yeah, I ended up going on to, I've read not all of it, but I, I've gone into the, the cowshed books a bit as well. And yeah, I find, I think it's a really interesting um, way to look at these things that they do. It asks a lot of you um, to look at it at, at face value that you kind of don't realize what it's, what it's asking of you. Um, yeah, yeah so. I would agree. That's my problem with David Icke as well. It gets you to consent, <clears throat> it gets you to consent to a kind of knowledge before you've really understood it much less experienced it right yeah yeah i think ex experience especially with with the streber thing um because I, I don't know if this is just like a cultural phenomenon of like uh copycat stuff happening but just so many books sort of follow the communion uh like mold um yeah which maybe it's a mark of a great work of, of literature but it, it's also yeah it's it feels almost like more like an, uh, an infectious kind of thing or something like. Well, one, one of the first pieces I wrote, and I don't know if either of you were influenced by Castaneda, but I was even much more than I was by Strieber even. Mm. Uh, and one of the first pieces I wrote, I think it was actually, I, the original Strieber piece broke off into two because it got so big. So the one that's more well known is now The Strange Case of Whitley Strieber. Uh, I think it was first called Will the Real Whitley Strieber Stand Up uh, through, a, through a, a Looking Glass Darkly, that one. There was a, spin, a splinter piece, which was about uh, the perils of the poet Shaman. I can't remember what it was called, but it was about all the correspondences and the parallels between Strieber and Castaneda. Mm. Um, and, and certainly in Prisoner Infinity, well, I also write about Castaneda there, but, but one of the main areas that I get into in Prison Infinity, one of the most compelling to me was this thing of crucial fiction and how a fiction writer, a crucial fiction is my term for what we all do. We come up yeah. with narratives to mm. paper over the cracks of our fragmentation and keep at bay the trauma. And those are our belief systems and even our identity really is, is a crucial fiction, you might say. But with the case of Strieber, what was interesting to me was using him as an example was he was this very talented writer of fiction Mm -hmm. And then of non-fiction, pseudo-non-fiction, or, or or is transcendental fiction, or whatever we're going to call it, same sort of category of, as Castaneda. Right. Because I think, however you frame Castaneda at this point, you have to say that it's a kind of fiction, even if 
you believe and i still kind of do believe that there's a lot of truth in there and as in not i don't just mean wisdom i mean actual true experiences i think he mm -hmm. did castaneda did encounter something very strange uh, mm -hmm. outside of consensus reality and i think streber probably did too but uh in cast in both cases well they're not exactly the same but certainly the act of wrestling something transcendental slash traumatic not to say that they're equivalent but if it's both and sometimes the transcendental itself is traumatic perhaps um the act of pulling it down into a coherent narrative and turning it into a book uh itself right. renders it fictional and and right. there's something yeah. about that power there's something about that power like we can see it. it's like charisma really but it's the charisma of the word a really talented writer casts a spell spellcraft there you go um and uh i think it it shows what we do ourselves because we narrate our own lives internally and a writer does it externally and there's a kind of complicity like a, i turn to streber and castaneda and then crowley even as writers who helped me they 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 turbo boosted my own uh, crucial fiction and my own and being a writer too my own ability to narrate or re-narrate my experiences in a way that suited my identity and made me feel powerful and inspired and you know, it was fun while it lasted right yeah. but at a certain point <laughs> icarus has to has to crack and burn because the wax and feathers of fiction don't get us to the transcendental mm, yeah and yeah, and, and, and like these, uh, I guess, is it a, what do you call it? Like a, a, a series of books, like seen and not seen through 16 maps of hell. Um, they all have that, um, the the writer himself is not, and it's, there's no, it's not an objective, it's a subjective approach to, yeah. to the thing, which I think is, yeah, that's, it adds an important layer, I think, um, where, yeah. Um, yeah, tricky. yeah. It's a yeah. tricky thing what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's. Anyway, yeah, I don't want to get off into objective, no. subjective land too much. But... Oh, well, I think, that it, I mean, that is a great subject. And I was going to yeah. say it was tricky because, or, or what was occurring to me is tricky. Is it's, it's not that tricky to put oneself into a narrative. And you could say, obviously, Streber and Castaneda do that. Mm -hmm. And that makes it seem credible uh more credible certainly uh, it's this narrative transportation that i write about in 60 mountains of hell we identify if it's in the first person we transport ourselves into the narrative more easily and quickly and mm -hmm. so we're more likely to believe it we identify with the, with the protagonist the first person and then we get immersed in their experiences and vice versa it's you know it's, it's circular or what have you um whereas what i've tried with my books they're not I mean, they are narrative nonfiction. I mean, that that's a, a, a description for what it is, but they're not ostensibly about my experiences the way mm -hmm. that Streber and Castaneda are claiming. I'm ostensibly writing about the culture and it's right. kind of psycho history, but then I'm including myself in the narrative, not so much as, well, I was there and I saw this, but I'm here now writing this. Yeah. So don't, it's not, it's not just don't trust. I don't, that's not my only message, of course, but keep remembering that this is just one person's attempt mm -hmm. to make his life more coherent. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because um, including Ike in that conversation, I think these three characters all kind of have some sort of guru ship to them, where you know they they created these pseudo myths. I mean, like you mentioned, Castaneda. I mean, it, it's claimed to be a true story, whether you believe it or not. I guess it doesn't really matter as much. Um, Streber, obviously, it's claimed to be a true story, um, but they all kind of. Uh, export this mythology into the world into a sort of doctrination, I think, a little bit. And especially with Ike, you know, Ike is almost uh, like selling seminars and stuff and creating this like 12-step program almost. I think it's interesting. Whereas your work seems to be going more inward and uh, I think interrogating the myths in a, in a more sensitive way. Does that make sense? Well, certainly what you're saying about those characters is is the thing that or one of the things that i would agree they have in common and that i've been putting them under the microscope to discover or to 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 reveal uh, i think there is a correlation between how trustworthy a teacher is and um how much they put themselves in a position of authority. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of being careful with my words, because as you probably know, I'm involved with Dave Oshana currently, who is a spiritual uh -huh. teacher. And and so it's not as though I've got anything against, I mean, Dave Oshana describes himself as enlightened and he, and he has group events and so on. And so that has all the trappings, the apparent trappings of what you're talking about there, Dave, another Dave. <laughs> um, but it isn't the same. And I don't want to go into that because then we'd go, we'd go down a whole other you know, avenue if I was talking about Dave Oshana. Um, so, but the point is that it's not necessarily just about how a person frames himself. I mean, somebody like, or how they present themselves or how they describe themselves. Cause somebody like Strieber, he, he'll deny until the cows come home. that He's a guru. Or, right. You know, he, he always, but actually it's what forms around these people that, that that's the tell. Yeah. Um, and actually this did come up just today about David Icke, the, and funnily enough, it was David Shan who was saying it that at my at my website that um, the way that he does what he does, it really seems to be about him more than anything else. Mm. Even though he's presenting all of this seemingly um, profound knowledge, um, it, it it's what David's saying. It creates this Dave here creates this cult of personality that is formed around the person, I think shows that really that, that that person is using the knowledge in a way to empower themselves. Right. That That's how I'd sum it up in a really, you know, just a succinct way. And that, that begins and maybe even ends with one's own relationship with knowledge, I think. So the thing with David Shana that is different around this uh, is that he's, He's, he's not really interested in knowledge, and I can see that even though he imparts it. He's always, he's, he, he's a very doubting person. He doesn't make emphatic statements, and it's all, very, it's all very fluid and spontaneous. 
so that it's very even though i've been blogging about his work and i have been formalizing his teachings to some extent because i think there's really useful stuff in there it's always constantly changing and as a result part is a result i think he never seems to have more than 20 people at one time in his events unless they're free events whereas what we see with Shriver and Ike and what I see with John Deruta who also wrote a book about that one doesn't get mentioned so much but it's kind of in that series is that uh, something gradually builds around them this audience cult and the uh, a part of that edifice is this body of knowledge or this body of teaching which is this it's a worldview so there's an Ikean worldview, there's a Strebian worldview, yeah. there's a Castanadan worldview. There isn't really a Horsley worldview, <laughs> yeah. uh, unless it's liminalism. Like I did try to brand it, but it was a bit ironic. Uh, it's like the no brand brand. Also, aut autism is, is kind of like that. Um, and 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 one of the things I've said is that, is that I'm, a, I'm a master of self-doubt. I, I, I'm just constantly doubting my own uh activities or my own output really mm. uh that's liminalism or that's part of liminalism uh and it's not it is it's bad marketing it's not a good marketing strategy uh i'm aware of that uh but it seems more important i don't want to get trapped i don't want to end up a prisoner of my own um not not infinity of my infinity you know my own right. making the infinite finite right mm. like yes i found the truth and here it is 12 steps as you said <laughs> it just doesn't i mean it can work for a day or a week or something but then you have to take it all down and start again you know? mm. yeah it's really interesting i wonder how much of that um is about feeding your audience too at a certain degree it kind of reminds me of um the master the film have you, have you seen that which is obviously a, what about l ron hubbard but yeah. when it comes to the second book you know you, you feel like there's this expectation and i wonder if ike um feels like he has this expectation to fill the needs of his audience at a certain point not to ramble about him but he is such an inter interesting character yeah yeah uh, it amazes me how many books he's written because although I haven't read them, I've flipped through a number of them and it seems like he's always writing the same book. Yeah, I think it's a lot of compiling. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and as I said, there's an Ike, everyone knows, well, not everyone, but most people in our neck of the woods, let's say, and it's quite a lot actually, uh, the subculture knows what an Ikean worldview is. They might dumb it down to lizards and, and pedophile rings and uh, satanic rituals and uh well anyway dot 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 there's a number of <laughs> elements aren't there right but but still you can sum them up and i mean ironically as i say in my blog today i don't i i actually think he's probably got most of it right i mean it, it pretty much conforms with my worldview but um but it seems that I don't see what the point is in just writing book after book and doing presentation after presentation if if it's always the same basic mm -hmm. thing. That then it seems just about uh, uh, the person themselves. Uh, I think you were saying the same, David. You've just got to keep producing the content in order to justify doing the appearances and and so on. And that it doesn't it doesn't seem to add up to me. Um, yeah like that like I, I mean bring it bring it down to the really personal um 
and this is also true of Dave Oshana, that to me it's all about individual connections. And I, you know, even this latest book, uh, and I've you know, I've just got the hardbacks, I'm just sending out the hardbacks now. So it's it's still really fresh, it's lovely to have the hardback, but I still I'm still I'm more than ever really still thinking, find myself thinking, well, it's just a book, you know, why did I really do it? And then I remember, well, and that's why inscribing and the sending is good, it's to make individual connections mm-hmm. like everyone who receives this book they read it maybe they'll have a profound response they'll have some response but um, so maybe there'll be something sufficient that they'll reach out and it will lead to something real you know outside the text on the page of the presentation and and, and that's um that's the opposite of building an audience really it's, it's like constantly wanting to boil it down to its essence and, and extract mm. the, the thing of real value. I'm not saying David Icke couldn't be doing that. I just don't see much evidence. And I think that the the bigger your audience is, the more distorted the signal gets because it gets mm. the more you know the more the more noise in the signal because it gets more and more diffuse. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's something to be said that also he he keeps putting out sort of the same book and they're all like two thousand pages or something and. It feels like he has to do this. Like uh, it seems like he's addicted to it, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not. I'm not sure. But you, you know, you see them just going to, you know, any bookstore. You'll see them on the shelf, and they just like they seem to get wider and wider, until eventually it's just going to be like he well, he won't be able to write books anymore. He's just gonna. I don't know what he's gonna. Have I to wonder do. if he even writes them at this point. He probably That's got true. a team. Um, yeah. I wonder the same about Streber. You know, because I can bring it back to Streber. I am. Um, you know, I read uh, The Greys, for example. I mean, I haven't been reading Streber for a few years, but um, and it, it's quite a shoddy novel. Uh, it's like, well, and his fiction's quite shoddy too. Uh, I actually once had a dream about Streber that while I was still into him, uh, and it was to do with the Tavistock Institute, and this was before I'd heard any paranoid stuff about them. So somehow they came into my dreams, this Tavistock. <laughs> And it was about how Streber was the front man for a group. Uh, and I suspect there is something in that. And Streber's writing is very inconsistent. Uh, so, um, but I mean, that could be to do with fragmentation too. I mean, the other thought I have about Streber around this is what you were just saying, uh, Ben, about Ike and like he has to write books he's addicted to it well I, yeah. I, I can relate to that writing <laughs> books gives purpose to my life yeah um but I think it is it can be very unhealthy and that again this is where a that's how a cult gets formed when the person who's unconsciously creating it is himself or herself dependent on having mm-hmm. a ministry you know, being in right. this position of authority mm-hmm. yeah I think that's true um yeah, that's so interesting about the Streber and Tavistock. Yeah, because <laughs> I guess you kind of came around to looking into that again later, right? After. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. didn't. Uh, I, I mean, I probably got into my unconscious because I've been looking into paranoid awareness for since my twenties. Mm-hmm. So I probably had heard about it, but I certainly didn't have a conscious thing of oh, the Tavistock Institute when I had that dream and it nor did it lead me to investigate just later it came out. I was like, Oh, that was the, the dream I had about Streber. And also the Tavistock Institute is based in Hampstead 
where I've lived. Uh, whenever mm. I've lived in England, I was lived in Hampstead. So I used to walk past one of their buildings, and which is weird too to me now, because as you know, probably in Vice of Kings, by the time I got to Old Colt Yorkshire, I ended up visiting the Tavistock in, you know, metaphorically as a writer, I just kept like, not all, quite all roads led to Tavistock, but quite a few. Kept, mm. Oh, here I am at the Tavistock Institute again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most recently I saw that I guess when he was still alive, Fidel Castro was like blogging about it or something. There was like some really yeah. strange, but yeah, yeah. So it really does seem all roads. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had not heard that. Yeah. Well, he was, he was writing like about who's the one that like the guy who wrote the big book on that um, uh, pretty recently, you know, within the last 10 years. Um, it was a, um, for, for the trying day, that book. Yeah, yeah, that Something one. Something like Esselin or I right. can't remember his name. Actually. Yeah, I guess Fidel Castro was reading that and like was <laughs> blogging his thoughts about it. At least that was what appeared to be, I mean, you know, there was some people talking about it on, on Twitter, I think. Um, anyway. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, bring it back to Prison Infinity without yeah, uh, making a total break. Um, what what I try with Prison Infinity in all my books, I guess, recently is to is to recontextualize that information in a way that isn't. I mean, Fidel Castro probably wouldn't end up reading it because it's not that entertaining. It's much more mm. demanding. And it's not primarily conspiratorial. I mean, I guess I get your opinion on this. Uh, but what I've found is and actually it's quite frustrating as a reason I did a blog post about it, that some people read my book, if they're, if they're opposed to conspiratorial thinking, they can read my books and they don't, they don't mind. They like my books, but they, they come away. Uh, they don't come away. It doesn't change their worldview. And that they interpret the information I put there in a way that isn't, isn't that conspiratorial, mm. uh, even though to me it's absolutely very compelling evidence. And that's, largely why I write the books but at the same time I do try and leave it sufficiently liminal that yeah the reader them, himself or herself can make up their mind yeah I mean I, I think it's dangerous and this is what people do they'll put things in a category that is conspiracy and that it's it's its own thing whereas and I think you even mentioned this pretty early on in the book sort of deconstructing that the idea that there's a separate thing that mm -hmm. like constitutes conspiracy thinking that's like yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like a different class of yeah. of thought and yeah i think that's uh another thing that's very contagious and i guess pretty provably linked to actual uh like intelligence operations um to, to get that to be its own sort of like uh, immediately damnable form of thought right um, yeah. yeah, I've seen you mention this a lot, the um this the usefulness of conspiratainment, how it's called now. Um would you would you mind talking a little bit about that? Cuz I think that's something that's permeating especially here in the states now like, you know. Yeah. widespread. Yeah, well, it, it's a, it's a big subject. It's one that I um well, initially I termed it the second matrix, and I still prefer that to conspiratainment, but conspiratainment caught on more quickly. <laughs> it has now become a term wherever it started, and um, I guess second matrix needs some more explaining. Second matrix is similar to the idea of a controlled opposition, really. Um, 
but the idea being if people are starting to wake up and see that consensus reality isn't what it appears to be, there will be a consensus unreality. There'll be a new consensus, which is Ikean or Alex Jonesian or Streberian or Michael J. Uh, Michael Hoffman esque or Shelby Downard, uh, what's his name, Bill Cooper, mm-hmm. uh, Jordan Maxwell. I could say there's a number of architects of the second matrix. Many of them, and you know, I've been one myself. Uh, many of them probably are well-intentioned and are disseminating good information. But there's something about the human mind, first of all, that wants to doesn't want to be in the liminal, doesn't want to be in the unknown, and so will um, it will. Uh, use the new information as a way to uh, create a new consensus reality, which is really not that different from the old one. So, I mean, this happened, this was in the second Matrix movie. They, when you finally get to Zion, you're like, Jesus, is that it? All of that, you know, <laughs> struggle for this? Please, let's discover that this is actually a second matrix and it was all, it's all just a trick to make them think they've unplugged, right? But that never happened. It was just that they were bad movies, in fact, was the <laughs> truth there. Um, but in, in the conspiracy or in the, what are we going to call it? I called it the alternate perceptions community. Um, it, it really is. Um, it does seem as though people they have a sense that something isn't right and something isn't what it seems. And that sense propels them to seek some sort of answer. But because it's so uncomfortable, that feeling of not knowing what's real, which way is up or down, they, we will grab on too quickly to some sort of answer. Mm. Back to David Icke again. I mean, he's, Mm. he's the poster boy of this. Um, and no wonder, you know, no wonder he writes so many books and they're so big because that would create the sense, well, look, there's even footnotes. I mean, this must be a reliable interpretation of reality, right? Mm-hmm. And they can just keep reading the new David Icke and even though it's the same as the old one, more or less, it's a little bit different. So you just keep reinforcing this idea that this new, this new view of the world. But, um, uh, well... I would just, I think I would say that we don't go far enough. And I said this even in my early books, and this is in Castaneda, interestingly enough, because I, it's a sort of circus, bit of a paradox here, because I think Castaneda is not a trustworthy thing and, and in a sense is an example of this trap. But ironically, and to his credit, he, Castaneda does acknowledge the trap in his works, and he writes about how this Don Juan told him that the path of sorcery is a dead end, that, but it's necessary to assemble over time a view of reality that is suffic- sufficiently uh, coherent that it, we're able to let go of our old mm. view of reality or, or it's able to, it, it overwhelms our, our previous view of reality. But the trick then is you have to also let go that of the sort of, you know, the new interpretation of reality, because the, 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 the purpose is to realize that we have this knack of assembling reality out of the perceptual and the cognitive data that we gather. We will just automatically assemble a reality. So we do that consensually. In order to escape from it, we need a new consensus. 
temporarily and Castaneda was the world of sorcerers for Strieber it was the world of the visitors for Ike it's his 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 reptilians and and so on um but uh if if we don't realize that we're still doing the same thing just with new data then we just end up trapped in a larger matrix that's all and that seems to be I think that that's I don't know how well I've articulated that, but because there are a lot of different angles to approach this from, but certainly now we're seeing that conspiratainment or conspiracy theory, whatever we call it, has gone viral. And I don't know who has the numbers, but we certainly know that David Icke can fill Wembley Stadium. <laughs> we know that Quinon, I mean, that, yeah. my God, you know, people believe that Donald Trump is going to save them yeah. now. The president of the USA, they believe he's... <laughs> yeah. Gonna, so so something has happened where that kind of aware or the growing awareness that reality social reality isn't what it appears to be has been the margin has been mainstreamized alex jones obviously was a key player in that mm -hmm. maybe even more than david Icke. yeah and in the process it's been co-opted it's been like the consensus reality has just been refurbished. The culture has been regenerated. It's also been divided, though. So there's, that's part of it, too. There's that, there is a kind of, well, there's a schism anyway. But I would say, who wants to be on either side? Like, that, that's, that's my problem or situation, why, why liminal, liminalism seems to be becoming more and more of a viable uh, antidote even if it's not becoming more popular or a necessary antidote is um well the only way is in between these these things because um the thing about waking up to hidden aspects of reality which corresponds with accessing areas of the unconscious we've suppressed is it, it, it it's a crisis it precipitates crisis. It, it can't actually be entertainment. And it can't just be this smooth transition, you know, oh, I was asleep and now I'm woke. Right. You know? mm. Yeah. Or, or now I'm Quran or whatever, whichever side you're on. But basically you've just, you know, you've just refurbished your identity and turbo boosted it and virtue branded it, whatever it is, and, and joined and you, you found your a consensus. Um, it's not, it isn't like that. It's... Um, it's very destabilizing, in fact. Mm. And I think I think this is the last thing I'll say, maybe, and maybe it will add something, is that this is part of, or central to this conspiratainment, which is weaponize the truth. The truth of this kind, some truths are very easy to weaponize because they're, they're destabilizing. So if you have your Ike or your Jones, they're just out there disseminating this very, I don't know about profound, but this, 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 this very disturbing content and it's just streaming out through your YouTube, and for whatever reason you're believing it, mm -hmm. maybe because it's true, you know, maybe at a body level you know a lot of it's true, and so you do believe it, but you're still only taking it at a mental level, mm. if you know what I mean. I mean you yeah, know, yeah. It's, you're not really able to embody it or act on it or refer to your own wisdom or right. your own experience. So um, that in itself is destabilizing. So I think that that's part of that is intentional, actually, well, we can't, we, you know, the, the eponymous we, as in they, you know, the, the, the cryptocratic powers that be, 
they can't keep a lid on it forever. So at a certain point, there's a controlled release where it's it's the it's the cliche, isn't it? We live in the information age. So um, now that we can't keep uh, important information from the people, just flood it, just flood them with it. And one way or another, they get, we'll get overwhelmed. Hmm. Even if we think we're becoming researchers and, and so on, we'll, we'll get psychologically overwhelmed, become unbalanced, just like psychedelics unbalance people, because you can't, you don't have time to actually process it. I mean, if you think about organized child abuse, what would that be like if one were to become aware of that child by child, watching all of the uh, child pornography the snuff movies mm-hmm. you know if one was really having a direct encounter with that rather than just listening to alex jones ranting about hillary clinton eating babies mm-hmm. um one would one would be totally destabilized one would have a nervous breakdown in a yeah. week yeah right so so sort of like a like a circus version of these like sort of extremely unpalatable like uh mind destroying things like a yeah yeah because yeah, and, and yeah. uh culture um i mean they destabilize the culture as well because part of it is recognizing that we can't trust the institutions but people continue to trust them so what's going on there right as in more and more people know they can't trust the institutions and the leaders but they carry on acting as if they could what's that about right yeah, yeah. that's um yeah, that's, I mean, I guess that's happening everywhere, but it's um, kind of, yeah, it's an everyday thing for America right now, even as we're ostensibly switching over mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the, the unstable leader to the stable leader. No, I don't, I don't really actually feel any difference in the air in terms of uh, how people are, are feeling, you know. Well, they, I mean, that's the flashpoint of it, isn't it? Because people know they can't trust the election process. I mean, they knew that last time. Dubbia, how many times has it happened that it's been shown that it's rigged? Yeah. But this time it's really front and center. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, unless, you just watch, unless you just watch the mainstream media and then they're doing their best to hide it, aren't they? But um, it's front and center that, you Americans don't know who the president is right now. Right. <laughs> it's who you want it to be, right? But and then, well, yeah. what's going to happen? Civil war? I don't know. But uh, uh, I guess uh, we'll see. But in the meantime, yeah. <laughs> how are people managing it psychologically? Right. Um, I think it's just for who shows up to work on inauguration day. <laughs> Whoever's there first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. think it's really interesting, though. I, I do think that you articulated that very well, um, specifically thinking about something like QAnon. It's like, well, you, you lift the veil and you leave you leave one establishment, but then you turn your back and you enter another one, you know? And I think it's interesting the way that people search for... Um, indoctrination or ideology through conspiracy stuff um it doesn't seem like the proper place for it it seems more like a place to interrogate um maybe your own pathologies and things like that um which i think is 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 sort of where your work leads a little bit um i mean maybe people find you that kind of use for your work um 
I'm not sure. Maybe that's the feedback you get sometimes. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's certainly it, it's just it, the QAnon thing starts to remind me more of like Joel Austin big church stuff. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not really sure what to make of it at this point. Uh, I guess we'll have to see where it goes and how far the brand um, pushes forward. Well, I think you make a a good dichotomy there or you describe a, a, a good dichotomy which is either either this kind of exploration leads to self-inquiry ideally it should begin with it yeah i think but uh, um certainly it should lead there as soon as possible and it's true about my books that the feedback that i get that is meaningful or the way that I be- I understand that my book is my books are having a a real impact is when somebody describes how it's awoken them to their own inner trauma, their inner programming, and they've begun to see themselves in new ways and see their lives, their personal lives in new ways, and it has actually led to some change, some some really obvious change in their lives, as compared to somebody who's just like wow, that that was amazing. You know, you really argued that well, and I'm really uh, now I understand much better why the world is the way it is. I mean that <laughs> that's all right. I'm glad if my books can provide that, um, but that is much closer to the other road, the other fork in the road that Dave was saying, where where it becomes uh, it people try to use the knowledge the information to it's, it's actually paradoxical because they they want to act on it and so then which which seems like the right impulse because i'm saying you know for for a book to have a profound effect i would i would hope that a person it would change the way they live their lives but it would start internally and then maybe yeah, maybe it would ripple out to the external hopefully it would but that would kind of be that wouldn't really be so interesting to me yeah it would be interesting actually i hear somebody say they were nicer to their kids after they uh, and things like that so it is good to see real world effects but the quanon thing is putting the cart before the horse i would say and wanting to act on knowledge seems to direct immediately before you assimilate and before you take the time to say well wait a minute where's where am i situated in all of this was i abused was i traumatized was i um deceived what's my crucial fiction using you know terms that relate to my work that process that could go on for years that mm-hmm. could go on for a lifetime whereas the quanon thing seems to be uh around conspiracy and the david Icke thing too although david Icke he throws in a bit of self-development in there you are infinite love and things like <laughs> that um but that they seem to be this is the state of the world. Uh, it's horrible. You don't like that. You're not like that. Do something about it. And that's always David's, David Icke's message, isn't it? He's saying, we've got to do something before it's too late. We've only got a year or two. He's been saying that for 20 years. Yeah. So that depends on being able to take that position depends on saying i'm okay the world is what's fucked up it's not 
right. it's not you know it's not me that's fucked up it's the world but it's my responsibility to change the world well that's social justice warrior thinking but it's also quinon thinking quinon mm. is like the world is run by pedophiles we just have to hunt them all down and, and burn them at the stake mm. and and Do donald's going to do it and and then we'll have a better world i don't even know if they get to that last bit but i presume they do otherwise <laughs> Yeah, well, well, that's the point. Right. Yeah, right. just I guess vengeance is a driver. <laughs> for, yeah. yeah. This is not entirely related, but it was something I wanted to mention, um, and isn't too far out of field from where we're where we're at right now. Um, and especially in *Prisoner of Infinity*, you're, you're talking a lot about um, how Strieber and and I guess later on, like the the sort of disclosure movement and space stuff. There, yeah. it's a lot. A lot of it's about uh, and new age thinking itself is. Um, you're trying to leave the body or, you know, you want to divorce yourself from the body because that's not you. Um, the body is sort of like this and you're critiquing this, um, this impulse. And, but that's, and that was sort of always like, even like, I guess up until I read that book a few years ago, I thought that that was like a good way of thinking. And it's really not, it's really not. Cause like, that's what you have. Um, mm. I wonder if, um, were you sort of you were in were you in that sort of state of mind of like i guess for lack of a better word like always attempting to astral project like is that well, before all, I, I probably was actually <laughs> even as a kid because i had these nightmares mm. um it always well for for a long time i mean it started with consciously with castaneda because he prescribes mm -hmm. lucid dreaming and how to do it um, and, and I took to it like a fish to water. But as a child, I definitely had what's now called depersonalization, derealization, a sense of alienation from my own body. I would have experiences sometimes of looking down at my body uh, and my feet and just feeling like there were a thousand miles away, like my head was floating up in space or something, totally dissociated from what I was seeing. Like I couldn't, couldn't identify with it. And, it's weird because that I'd say that's a symptom of disembodiment, but it also made me want to escape because I couldn't relate to my body. So I, mm. they, that was frightening. That was, that was actually potentially terrifying. So the idea of being totally disembodied as in astral projecting, uh, then I wouldn't have to worry about that. You know, I wouldn't have this, this feeling of disconnect from the physical reality and, and my body. And, um, I, I'm pretty sure at this point that you know whatever caused that 
for me as a child, it didn't resolve itself. And then in my 20s, post pre and post castaneda, I started doing a lot of psychedelics and that turbo boosted my lucid dreaming or my astral projection. And it, again, it was fun while it lasted. It's it, back to Icarus. It, you know, I did an awful lot of, I had an awful lot of profound experiences uh, at the time. Um, but um, they didn't really lead anywhere. Mm. So, uh, so what the turning point for me, there was a period, and it was the same period I started writing about Strieber, even though it wasn't directly related, consciously, I mean, was um, was also when I read Cowshed, because a therapist recommended I read Cowshed. The same therapist was giving me free therapy as a friend, and she, she said, I don't want to hear about your wild cosmic dreams and all that. <laughs> she already knew that I had tales of power coming out my ears. She's wanting to hear about the mundane stuff. So that was interesting. She also said, try and go inward when you dream. Try, instead of flying off, try and just come down to earth or go into the body. Very good advice. And during that period, I don't know if I told her this, and this was partly why she said it, but I was noticing that the more, uh, the further I went in my dreams, the, you know, the more cosmic and the more lucid and the more uh, far out they were, literally, the harder it was to wake up in the morning, like I, I would wake up feeling like I was physically half dead, actually. I felt mm -hmm. like I was half dead and I had to put myself together over about a period of an hour, like atom by atom. <laughs> okay, to bring in, bring in the, bring the atoms back in now. Uh, and that, I, I mean, I, yeah, I knew that. That couldn't, that couldn't be a good thing. If, if, if this was... Um, making my health worse than something something was off so that was the beginning in retrospect with hindsight um, oh, and that was 13 years ago so Prisoner Infinity was right about the middle of that period um, that I started writing a bit later actually 2013 um, no that is that's halfway between then and now um, and so, yeah, Strieber, he really is a poster boy for that. Like his stories, his tales of power, more than Castaneda. Because Castaneda, well, it's actually Strieber talks about the body too, so you can never, you can never trust what a person says. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, all of his tales and all of his... And that was when I hit on the thing of the cities, which I found was very useful, as you may recall, that the Eastern teaching about the cities that, on the path to enlightenment, we may access these powers, but those those are traps for the ego. And if you if you fall into them, if you get attracted by the cities, then you get further and further away from liberation, not mm -hmm. closer to it. I think that's connected because you know, we have this idea of enlightenment as somehow being. Um, well, related to having superpowers, one thing, psychism, right. far out cosmic kind of consciousness and whatnot. But I think that uh, the opposite, in a certain sense, the opposite is true that, that enlightenment relates to being fully embodied and fully in the senses and having all the senses open. And so that would be, it wouldn't be about awareness of angels or aliens or other planets or psychic thing it would be about 
what's going on with my liver right now what's <laughs> my heart doing what are my kidneys how's the blood moving and what's uh, just all the cells in the body There's so much information if our senses were open and that would be it would cosmic in in one sense in that it would be so it would so transcend what we think of as ourselves if we became fully bodily conscious um, but also in the sense that the body is nested in the whole of nature so I think it does lead to an expanded awareness, but only if it's, only if it's rooted, uh, grounded like a lightning rod, and if it's grounded in full embodiment, which I think almost no one, including all these supposedly enlightened people, all the Strebers and the Castanadas, almost no one actually comes all the way in their body down to their feet. That's what I think now. Hmm. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Actually, in our we went we interviewed some people in our last episode, and I think I mentioned Streber because I'd been reading his one of his newer books to like see what he's been up to. Um, I can't remember I can't remember what it's called, but anyway. But he he has this thing where he is. Um, I guess the visitors have given him this this ability to when he closes his eyes, he's in like another version of reality, and like he's with like different things happening around him and. Like the way he describes it is both terrifying and beautiful, as as he often does. Um, yeah. Uh, but it 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 doesn't sound desirable to me. It's sort of it's very interesting. Um, like how disorienting and sort of like maddening that's that sounds now. Um, yeah. Have you been keeping up with uh, his work much at all? Or no, no. A lot of it is sort of uh, post death interactions with his wife. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I got a sense of what it is and where it's been going. Mm. Um, I find it quite distressing, Strieber's thing, and I, did, I mean, maybe that's overstating it. But I used to listen to Strieber because I found his voice relaxing, which is very ironic. Because as I said, when I first heard his voice, I was like, "Well, something's wrong with this guy," <laughs> and I never changed that viewpoint. But I still enjoyed listening to his voice. Mm -hmm. Maybe because something in me resonated with it, um, but I at a certain point I realized okay, I've done, I've done, I've been all the way through the Streber tunnel. I'm out the other side. <laughs> Stop listening to the audios. Um, and the last ones I listened to, I think, were around his. There's a couple of books about, and he's he's channeling his dead wife Anne. I suppose yeah. he's, whether it's through the implant or not. And why I said I find it distressing is because, again, I think that Strieber's tapped into something that corresponds with a reality, but either he's uh, it's filtering through this traumatized identity and so it's becoming just a distorted kind of a shrill, warble, garbled version of the truth, or even worse, it's a counterfeit. It's actually mm. some dissociative counterfeit. The Christians would say it was demons, right? Posing mm. as angels. Well, <laughs> I'd say metaphorically, I can work with that, not if we go too literal. But there, I think there is, there's a layer of experience. Charles Upton writes about it very well. Um, the, the psychic realms can counterfeit the spiritual dimensions. Mm. And we're complicit with it. And because we don't have because we're so cut off from spiritual reality, to use a phrase, I mean, it's a bit of a big phrase, but objective reality would be another way to describe it. Um, 
we don't know the difference. We can create these psychic marvels and they do transcend the physical, but so what? Right? Mm-hmm. If they're still confined to the intersubjective psychic realms, they're temporal, they're not eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we oh, can create yeah. our own house. Yeah. And probably do. Yeah, that's a good distinction, I think. Yeah. I mean, I feel, yeah, there is the assumption, and I'm not sure why, that the psychic is in some way directly uh, related to like the eternal or like the, the, the real, the true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no real reason to think that. Mm. I guess. No, yeah. I think it's the flip side of being locked into a materialist viewpoint. Mm. You feel mm. the body's all there is. And then wait a minute. No, this is back to the second matrix. No, there is another reality. It's the psychic. Oh, wow. And then, mm. and so then that fills the void of the spiritual because the real, it isn't a dichotomy, but the polarity the yin and yang is the physical and the spiritual, the temporal and the eternal. The psychic, the psychosomatic is like the bridge between the two. Uh, but if, if you've, yeah, if you've just grown up in a world that just says there's only the physical, as soon as you really start to see that's not true, then you might forget to go beyond the second matrix just right. think oh well the i found the real truth it's these psychic domains where i can fly to other planets and i can live for thousands of years and transhumanism of course is, mm-hmm. is a scientific right. realization of this dream it's, it's, yeah that, that's i mean of all the things i can think of sounds the, the closest to like inventing your own hell i think it, it uh, reminds so. me of um it's like uh this this spiritual realization is like a demiurge it reminds me a lot of like gnostic terminology and sort of like this archonic way of thinking um where you're getting to this next layer but there's a layer beyond that layer it's it's it's, it also conjures you know like the maybe the the original simulacra and film is oz getting behind the curtain and then there's like a beyond that curtain you know but it the term it does remind me a lot of gnostic terminology i think um and mm-hmm. I, I i don't know i mean maybe there's something to that too i mean not to go too deep into the weeds into mythology stuff but there seem like the the occult um the occult tapping into powers like gaining power through the occult and that use through um these proposed secret societies and stuff or cabals um whether it be in hollywood um or you know behind governments and stuff um i think that's interesting uh, the the use for that using the psychic layer for power yeah i think that's the that's the appeal of it is that you can uh you can exploit it right you can utilize it whereas the i mean god by definition (laughs) you can't get god to work for you you know you can't co-opt you can't um put a handle on you can't harness of course i mean we can't really say anything about god (laughs) but but let's say the transcendent by definition, if something is transcendent and it's beyond our grasp, it's beyond our reach, the religious view is traditionally in Muslim and Islam and Christianity is, is that God has to move. You know, we, we can't do anything to make it happen. We can we can pray, 
we can surrender we can make sacrifice and so on i'm not saying this doesn't have its dark side too by the way it does obviously it does but just thinking about the principles there um that one is key that you can't co-op the eternal you can't storm heaven you know either you get into heaven or you don't you can't get there by your will you, you know, maybe deeds make a difference but but you don't have to say at the end of it you can do all the good deeds in the world god still says sorry eh. you know <laughs> you, your heart wasn't in the right place you're like what the fuck <laughs> you know, i followed the handbook and so whereas occultism is the opposite of that as in the step by step do these steps you'll get this result and even an interesting twist to it postmodern really if you believe that doing these results will get the result then you'll then you'll definitely get the result and if you mm -hmm. didn't get the result you didn't believe enough so it's it's even beyond it's kind of meta isn't it it's even saying that the psychic realms aren't really real they're just as real as you make them mm -hmm. it's really just you right yeah. you'll Lucifer, go ahead reign in hell you know good luck yeah. to you <laughs> and, yeah that's obviously that's a lot more appealing not the hell part but that you can reign part and that you don't have to give up your identity you don't have to give up your illusions your delusion you know i i wrestled with this for i probably still am actually but for years while i was trying to make it in hollywood knowing because of my spiritual intuition let's say that and just common sense that if I really was successful in Hollywood or as a writer as well, if I had a bestseller, it wouldn't make me happy per se. I knew that. Um, and, and, and knowing that really all I wanted was to be happy because that's all anyone wants at that level, just the emotional level. Um, but I wanted to be happy my way, right? I wanted to, to have, to achieve all the things that I'd set out to achieve. So I'd have the, the gratification and the satisfaction of succeeding uh, and be happy. You see what I mean? Like if someone had said, you can be happy tomorrow for the rest of your life, but you w all of your dreams will fail. <laughs> I'd be like, mm, I think I'll just keep trying a bit longer. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, well, what is that? Why would I, why would I have that? Right? Because yeah. something about the identity it just wants to, it's yeah. more concerned about having charge and, and making things the way it wants them than it, than it is even about being happy. Yeah. That's the Luciferian thing. That's it in a nutshell. I, say, right. I don't want to serve God, even if it will give me all joy and meaning. I'm not going to serve you, motherfucker. I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a trauma. That's a trauma generated identity. Hmm. It just wants revenge, it wants power. It, it won't surrender yeah. even if it knows that that is going to you know, give it freedom if that if that is the only way it will be free it, it won't do it uh, that to me is occultism i know i'm painting a black picture so some you probably have occultists who listen uh, <laughs> there, there may be exceptions you know there may be mm -hmm. ways to, to to be on the path of occultism uh, that that aren't this, but I I certainly wasn't, and I haven't. I just haven't been convinced. It just always seems mm. to come down to wanting to have control over your destiny, and that that's a delusion that we just cannot co-opt the those higher principles of which destiny would be one. The, the point of destiny, it's not like fate that we're a slave to it, but that. It only happens if we surrender our own will, like it's a higher will.
that's what makes it destiny, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a. Uh, I can't say that I necessarily know how to practice it. Just that I've learned. I was going to write when I was going to write my memoir. I was going to call it all the wrong moves because <laughs> I've I've just done so many. I've tried so many things and they all failed. I was like, I really, I'm I'm an expert now on how not to do it. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe. I mean there's so much we could talk about in this area even with uh just with prisoner of infinity but maybe we should move into the newer book since i mean you know that's where you're at and um i yeah that's what i most recently read um and something that stood out a lot um was the interaction it had with this writer uh, brian hayden and his book on um secret societies do you i mean i would i would not go as far as to say it's like a sort of like a sister work to that like a, bringing it up to date or something because it's more complicated than that but how how much of an of an influence was was that work on the book and can you speak at all maybe to to what that work is because i mean i ended up buying a copy and i've been kind of looking through it it's really really kind of disturbing stuff really fascinating Oh, well, I'm glad you bought it. Hopefully he sold a few more books uh, because of me bringing attention to it because I don't suppose he sold very many. About $70, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and and I spoke to Brian. He's local, actually. He's also in BC, where I am. I spoke to him for the podcast. Uh, I discovered his work uh, very late in writing 16 months of hell so i had finished it i thought i'd finished it i mean i, I knew i hadn't because i never it, 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 rewrites always bring about transformations but i'd finished the first draft and by the time i read hayden and i so i couldn't i mean the, the first draft actually is very very different from the version you read so i did end up doing a lot of restructuring as it happened anyway but i didn't uh, restructure the book around Hayden's work. What I tried to do was was stitch it in there, you know, like mm. like uh, sewing on, you know, badges onto a coat that's already made, and that would somehow bring out the features better. But weren't they weren't entirely intrinsic to the structure, certainly. Um, mm. But for me, I felt that they. I mean, a few quotes here and there, and extrapolating from his thesis. And and then referring to it, it deepened. It, I felt it just deepened the whole work mm. because the 16 Maps of Hell, I was going to call it the secret history of Hollywood, which even that would be overstating. Obviously, it's not a history of Hollywood. It's it's not even really a history, but but insofar as it 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 does incorporate history or you know, revisionist sort of history of of Hollywood. Uh, it's obviously it's only a hundred years and not even really. I mean, mostly yeah. I just start with the sixties and seventies, um, and it's not chronological. If anyone was thinking it, it might be at all. Uh, so then, uh, but actually, no, we could say that because because I incorporate the Dadaist movement and surrealism and some of these avant-garde pre-Hollywood movements, then it. Well, it's still only a hundred years. It goes back to the early nineteen hundreds, right? Mm -hmm. So Hayden's work is looking at prehistorical societies, and so 
um, the way that I found it useful, though it's audacious, was, as you know, was, well, what if uh, we superimpose the map that I'm attempting to draw here around Hollywood and 20th and 21st century Western society, particularly media, but also the secret societies or the intelligence community and organized crime societies uh, and deep state, as it's called, behind the entertainment industry. What if we superimposed that on top of Hayden's examination of prehistorical trans-egalitarian societies, their rituals, their abuses, their ceremonies, their performances, um, the, the structures of power, the way they networked and so on. And, you know, maybe I was biased. I'm sure I was because I was you know, trying to present a compelling case. But I found that they seemed to fit pretty well. Mm. You know, point yeah. by point, there seemed yeah. to be an awful lot of correspondences. Yes. Um Especially, I mean, this can't, it's not going to be a direct quote, but it's just something I wrote down, that there's this sort of like the, in the, in the Hayden work, the secret societies, but I guess in our world, the, whatever you want to call it, like the, the ruling elite slash, uh, yeah, I don't, like, they don't really have a good name, maybe, but um, yeah, they want to, they want to be seen as like, um, both benevolent and like capable of horrible evil at, at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Uh, and that was a parallel that I thought was like very much of why. Um, and the, the David McGowan stuff um, was also um, sort of thing, which, yeah, just that, that there's this, dual nature to our, mm. our rulers. That would correspond with uh, what we're talking about with conspiratainment and the revelation of the method idea that, that part of the strategy of psychological warfare control, mass control, is to broadcast how malevolent the cryptocracy is can be. They want to hide it, but they don't want to hide it. Mm. Both. Mm. Both. Right. And, and that's, a, I guess, a, I mean, it's like that, the, the shock and awe thing, right? That, yeah, people are able to, you're able to, and not everyone, but you're able to be controlled to a certain extent when you're in a, a state of fear or, or shock. Um, yeah. I had an interesting, frustrating experience uh, with somebody who read 16 Mounts of Hell called Greg Desolet, or Desolet, uh, mm. I always pronounce it Desolet, <laughs> and uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's written a book about Wittgenstein and Derrida, he's, so he's deep into postmodernist philosophy and this, not quite an academic writer. Anyway, I blogged about it because he wrote a review and uh, he, it's reminding me of this of now because well, he liked the book and he praised it, but he said that he, uh, my thesis just wasn't convincing in terms of this cabal of controlling sorceress elite 
which by the way i i don't i'm not i don't claiming in the book or now that it's a single cabal yeah. or anything. i try to be sure. careful right yeah. of these but you know that there isn't this element throughout history and so on but anyway he he just rejected that and 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 so we got into it a bit of the blog and stuff and he just couldn't and i knew from previous disagreements with him that he's not able to go into the conspiracy zone. Like I remember, like he, he wrote about taxi driver and he critiqued it because he felt it had caused John Hinckley Jr. to, to shoot Reagan. And I'm like, well, no, you need to look at the background here. Cause you know, actually John Hinckley Jr. was, was part of a, an operation. There it wasn't just some crazy guy who went ballistic cause he saw a movie. He might've been, uh, you know, psychologically worked on, to, to do that, to be a player in it, but there were a lot of other. Anyway, I presented all the evidence that to me and all my other readers was like, whoa, yeah, there's no doubt that something was going on there. And he just totally rejected it. So I already knew that he just, there's a no go area for him around these things. And it's very frustrating to me. And, and so we got into over 16 mounts of hell. And he just, it's like he just couldn't allow the, that what what we're embedded in now, even though central to it is our complicity and that we've become puppets of this superculture and we're perpetuating it. So it's not about blaming, scapegoating, isolating or identifying some evil elite. That's not my my aim. Still, I think we need to acknowledge that there is a conscious, uh, intentional human element here. There are conspiracies, they're real and they're far reaching. There are secret societies. Needless to say, that's central to my book. So the fact that this chap rejected that while praising the book was cognitive dissonance. I was like, how can you say it's a great book and reject the, uh, this is like, anyway, uh, and it, it occurred to me now that in his long review, I don't think he said anything about the secret societies. I, I think he just left that alone, that prehistorical bit. Hmm. Which is, it just occurs to me that's quite interesting because... Yeah, uh, it seems, uh, if not central, then at least important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the idea that Hayden's thesis is a trans-egalitarian elite and the aggrandizer element in humans has been central to how human societies have formed from prehistorical times and although he doesn't extrapolate exactly because he's not right about the present time he's not he doesn't argue that this has continued to this day i do right um but certainly there's no reason not to argue that there's no reason to, and and, the, and the, the body of evidence that hayden presents is is that the earliest societies and the earliest religions even seem to be uh, sourced in the secret society, trans-egalitarian uh, agendas of aggrandizers to configure society in such a way that they will have a great deal of control, let's not say total control, somewhat in a kind of predator-to-prey relationship. Right? And so that's, I mean, that's all I'm saying about today's world. Right? But yeah. to, to Greg, that's that's a bridge too far. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it seems ob ob obvious to a certain extent. Yeah. I don't know. I think. I mean, uh, it's interesting to me these discussions. I mean, uh, I mean the ones I have with Greg, 
you know, the world is a complex place and I can see how it would be hard to believe that a small number of people could have as far-ranging influence as, as it seems that they do. But um, I think one of the things that occurred to me in this, and we're kind of getting off topic, we'll go on to another of my books, which is Vice of Kings, but one of the things that has occurred to me recently anyway is this, that I've always believed this. I've never had any trouble with believing that the society was being shaped and covertly directed by a, by a hidden elite. Uh, and why is that? Well, oh, probably because I was born into a family where they were doing it, and you know, I didn't get recruited. I didn't. Uh, I didn't meet the grade or whatever the expression is. I didn't. You know, I didn't uh, tick the boxes that were necessary. I just said, "Fuck off! I'm out of here." Literally, and I got rid of my inheritance and everything. I rejected the whole program, and I'm not saying I knew that I was growing up around. Uh, secret conspirators i'm just saying that i was in that environment so my programming was to be one of the elite who who hurts the masses and so that was my attitude wasn't i'm going to be that but my attitude always was that the masses are just you know uh culture possessed zombie latas who'll just go whichever way the the farmers or the sheepdog chase them i always had that attitude towards people mm. because i was um indoctrinated with it growing up even though my family they were socialists they were supposedly humanitarian but they had that contempt and I right say, yeah they had some info in, inside information i think about you know that this is what we do we're social engineers and we 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 you know take charge for the for the masses that's what mm. I, that's my guess now and it's only i'm 53 and it's only just occurring to me mm -hmm. i find it um really interesting um in the sort of sphere of influence that you're talking about um, with like would-be cabals and stuff, um, especially in Hollywood, the, the sort of like synchronicity threads of like the, re the reflexivity of characterization. I know you talk a lot about Polanski and this sort of like actualization of his own myth through um, Rosemary's Baby and then being actualized through the... Um, Tate LaBianca murders and stuff. Is that do you are you sick of talking about that stuff or do you care to elaborate on that a bit? Uh I I have been writing about it forever, as I've said on a recent interview. It's I keep going back to that <laughs> that subject. It isn't so much that I don't have anything new to say, it's almost the opposite that I still haven't got to grips with it. I still don't really understand how that, how that happens. Um, and I think part of it is that, I mean, my worldview has changed a lot. And when I was initially writing about the idea, and I'm not sure if this is what you're saying, but the idea that life would imitate art and that there would be an occult dimension to that. Um, I, I mean, I was, I was down with that in my early books uh, about the imaginal realms and that, you know, this consensus reality is less real than the psychic. And so, so, you know, we shape our reality and something like that was going on with Polanski and it backfired. I, I, I was going to say, obviously, but I suppose maybe it's not obvious. I mean, it's not obvious that, um, how that affected him, except, 
we just have to base it on what he says. Um, but anyway, that was how I saw it, that somehow that backfired. And then over the years, uh, particularly in these last few years of writing, when I started returning to that material again with Seen and Not Seen and then 16 Maps of Hell, the my awareness of a different kind of occult reality, which has got nothing to do with the supernatural. Not that it's got mm -hmm. nothing to do with it, because this, when I write about the psyops and serial killers and, and the Phoenix program and stuff in 16 Maps of Hell, the way that the military and intelligence agencies and who knows who all else, probably corporations these days, and anyway, the way they can use shock and awe to put it, um, fear of the supernatural to um, control to you know to, to bring about ends um, that that blurs the line a lot because those kind of psychological operations are occult in the literal sense they're hidden mm -hmm. and then they have this occult element such as the trope about serial killers in the movies and in real life son of Sam or the zodiac killer or Manson wasn't really a serial killer. Mm -hmm. uh, who are some of the other famous ones? Ted Bunny wasn't really occult. Uh, the Strangler, Richard Ramirez, he had uh, Satanist symbolism. Yeah. There's a bunch of them, quite a lot, probably 50% of the well-known ones. There's some occulty stuff in there. Um, and, and certainly the Phoenix program, some of the case studies are put in Vietnam where they pretend to be vampires. Well, not exactly pretend, but they kill body, they kill people and leave the bodies to make it look like vampires did it. Um, so the use of the occult, the use of the belief in the occult and the simulation of the occult mm. is central to psychological operations which are occult in the sense of being hidden. Mm -hmm. And that, so then the question is, well, do, do the people who practice these things believe them or do they just... Uh, know that they're useful and so they act as if they believe them well that's there's a lot of occultists who are that way too they're, they're actually materialists and and atheists uh mm. i mean what's the Satanist? it's hard to say mm. probably a materialist some yeah. some of them are christians of course they're you know rebellious christians and they believe it. but anyway it's all a whole blurry area um and uh uh, where was it going with that? So, so the question of so then that makes it very hard to know, like how much of it is actually to do with psychism and the supernatural. Like, so back to Polanski, trying to bring it back to that, um, and also back to Strieber. I mean, to some extent, it might be possible. It's certainly possible to try and explain or, or interpret all of that in a purely materialistic way i mean i'm not i can never be purely materialistic but let's just say rational and don't don't have to go into any kind of speculation about metaphysical right. forces i mean to me there isn't a clear dividing line anyway so i feel it's a bit of i get i fall into a trap when i try and talk about these things but i know that at a certain level of thinking there is a dividing line right either you believe in the supernatural or you don't and polanski is an interesting case study a number of reasons but including this he was always claiming he didn't believe in it that he's an atheist mm. and and yet he's fascinated by it he makes movies about it and it spills into his life in this mm -hmm. extreme way i mean 
Manson family wasn't overtly occult, but still, I mean, there, there were robes and there were rumors, and certainly for, for the mass audience, it felt as though there was some satanic invasion into his life. Um, so, so then the question for me becomes in 60 Maps, how do we believe him when he says that? And, it, and if so, do we know what he means by it? Because uh, when people talk about belief, and, and talk about a movie maker, their whole thing is about getting people to suspend disbelief. They'll say whatever they want to make sure that their psychological operation is effective. Same with the intelligence agents. They'll say whatever they want. So what, I mean, I ended up with 60 Mounts of Hell, actually, and it was weird how this happened. Uh, I don't know if you've read all the book, the last chapter, I ended up including this dream that I'd had uh, 13 years to the day because I listened to old tapes I make on the same day that I made them years later mm -hmm. just by coincidence uh, so I'd had this dream 13 years to the day before I was trying to finish this chapter and I was right and, uh, and it was about Polanski and how in the dream he was he was on in being interviewed and he said I could see that he was making an effort to convince people that he didn't believe in any of this stuff. Hmm. Um, but in actual fact, he had direct knowledge of it. It was a bit like the Strieber dream. And that he was talking about, or I understood that uh, it's possible for individuals to, to use belief in a cynical way to construct something that will then fulfill the belief so the example mm. in the dream was the devil that somebody or a group of people who don't believe in the devil but, but they can set about cynically uh, using uh, simulation of belief uh, to to bring about all the different components this would be ritualistic and a movie is a ritual uh to assemble a an, a devil an image of a devil you could say and that will then that, that will then make something real that was not real except by the power of belief that they've simulated in order to bring it about. So it's a double thing. Mm. And this is, you know, because mm. you have to tell yourself, I'm going to pretend to believe this enough that I can make it happen. And I believe if I pretend to believe it and I act on it, it will happen. So then you do start to believe because you know that it's effective. <laughs> see, it's such a yeah. mind fuck, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and more and more I see that this is what movies are. Actually. Yeah. Mm. Oh man! Wow, that's it's so interesting, and I, like the Polanski case study, I think the reason why the whole Manson thing is still around in so many people's heads. Um, you know, you mentioned like the simulation of the occult. You could see the the effect for you could see the why of why you would want to create the scenario. It's almost like the Manson murders are the movie, and it's I, I mean. I think it is like this crux of of Hollywood in a way too where I don't know it's just this sort of like this apex point uh, I don't know it's mm. not really wording it so well right now but yeah it's it's really interesting I mean if there are true intelligence connections with Polanski I mean you could see why this construct became so useful you know mm -hmm. I mean it basically did end uh the hope of a the summer of love right you know yeah well that was my first take on it was it can't be coincidental that you know the the 
the counterculture came to such a bloody end with the supposed hippie or guy who looks like a hippie showing himself to be a mass murderer, even though he didn't kill anyone. Right? Uh, that that was my first like something is not right here, just intuitively. That's too neat and tidy. Um, that's just the first layer of the onion, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what's what's weird. Even weirder. I mean, another. There's a, the layers keep. There's more layers getting added on. Like before, we can even get to the core of the onion. New layers are being added on. So we've got this book, Chaos, that just came out. Right. Yeah. Uh, more. I don't know about more and more, but a significant proportion, thanks to this Joker, um, Mars Mathis, is his name, who I don't like very much. But anyway, you'll know about Mars Mathis, I'm sure. Um, am I getting his name right? I'm not sure what is who's that. I'm not sure if I do know. Well, anyway, I'll I'll finish it and you tell me because maybe okay. I misremembered his name. Be glad if you haven't heard of him. Um, <laughs> the the people who believe the Manson murders never happened. That the whole thing was staged and that Sharon uh, Tate's still alive. Have you not encountered that? Oh, I wow. have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I didn't. Is this like a person who writes like a blog, maybe? PDFs, or it was for a while. The PDF, yeah, I've seen that. Theory of history is none of it ever happened. Nothing ever. (laughs) No one's dead. No one ever died. It was all a big psyop. Anyway, I mean, some of it may be true. Who knows? I I try not to be dismissive. Uh, I just brought it up now, is is because Dave was saying about how it's like a movie, or in a certain sense, can be seen like that. Well, now there are people who literally believe the whole thing was staged and and it's just fiction. I see. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I really don't, I don't think that I don't, I mean, yeah. but I can see where, where you to that point, if you sort mm-hmm. of t- make some assumptions about how these things happen, how, how they're carried out. I think it, I think it's back, it's a bit back to the reptilians as well. I think it's once people have taken, uh, once they're, idea of consensus reality started to wobble enough they want to just tear the whole thing down mm. and say oh, fuck it i don't have to believe anything anymore right yeah i think uh, i'll just believe in, in shape-shifting lizards because then well basically all bets are off right yeah that's like a psychosis element of the conspiratainment with like the whole crisis actor phenomena i haven't yeah, encountered that with the the um manson stuff though that's crazy yeah, and I was just saying, I mean, I don't find the crisis actors very hard to believe, particularly having seen the videos. So the worst part of it is is that because our discernment's been so fucked up by generations of propaganda derangement, um, we uh we'll we'll start um, we don't know, we can't discern, we can't tell. We we just know that a big portion of this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Is is a, a weird brand of disinformation that is for a particular demographic that isn't buying the the, the mainstream disinfo, mm. right? The second layer of disinfo. Once you start, it's spike ground is another way of putting it. You know about spike ground where they try and make people think there's a there's a, a gold, not a gold mine, but there's gold oh. in the mm. land. They mm-hmm. actually put the gold in the land. <laughs> oh so yeah, yeah. And they think, wow, I found it, and they'll spend a whole fortune on that piece of land, right. not realizing it's put there. So right. <laughs> this is true in this re- in the research field that intelligence operatives they do it every as we speak, every minute on the internet, because now they've got, you know, it's 24-7. Um putting 
false leads everywhere and uh yeah just mixing up muddying the well mixing up bullshit with truth and the thing is and why i still have not time for david Icke per se but i still stay open to the flat earth or whatever not that i'm interested but i mean uh i we can't i don't feel i can use the gauge of that's ridiculous or that couldn't be true as my way of discerning because that's 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 too one size fits all that's and that 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 depends on too much trust in our own conditioned faculties for knowing what's probable and what's improbable mm. and you know i've always had this sense that consensus reality isn't it that mm. is it is 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 yeah is false so so i've always been open to the most outlandish things that did make me pray for the Strebers and the Castanadas and the Crowleys. I admit, you know, I come a cropper and the John DeRutas. But maybe to my credit, as a result of that, I haven't doubled down and just said, fuck it, I'm not going to believe anything anymore. I still I still feel that I, I don't actually know what the psychological operatives are capable of. I don't know... Um, how easily we're, we're fooled. I don't, I mean, I don't, you know, dot, dot, dot. I, it's almost like I don't really know anything, but that's, that would be, <laughs> that would be disingenuous. Obviously I work quite hard to try and map thing. I mean, that that's really central to the books that I write is I try, I'm trying to, um, well, be the voice of reason would be the simple way of putting it to enter <laughs> into a field that's just full of noise and disinfo and hearsay and rumor and sensationalism and strip it all down and say, just the facts, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. When you enter into this, um, either by like predisposition or experience, it, yeah, you're kind of always on this unstable ground and, and it, it adds almost like a, yeah, another like almost agent into it of like this uncertainty um, that you have to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it can, the danger is, is one can open the doors to philosophy then, and <laughs> then you're doomed. Right. Like that with Greg Desolet. If you're trying to argue this stuff with the postmodernists, you never know uh, where they're at, you know, what level they're talking on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. this is particularly true around conspiracy because, I mean, again, that word has, has reduced something profound and complex and nuanced and so multifaceted to something simple. Uh, and so it's, it's lost its meaning. But um, on top of that, or maybe inseparable from that, that conspiracy is impossible, or the effect, efficacy of conspiracy that I'm writing about is impossible without complicity. And I mean complicity of everyone. Mm -hmm. Like if we're talking about global control, the only way that could possibly be effective is if everybody's complicit. Mm. But that doesn't mean everyone's in on the conspiracy in the usual sense. People always say that couldn't possibly happen because you couldn't have that many people lying about it. Well, number one, we we know that's not true. We had the Manhattan Project and so on. There's all kinds of ways in which professionals know how to lie, especially if their life depends on it. But secondly, um, it isn't. It, depending on the level, it's not conscious lying. It's unconscious complicity 
and compliance mm. uh, and and cultural conditioning whereby we, we're just we're following cues like Pavlo's dogs we're acting in ways that are predictable that, that can then be incorporated into the psychological operation mm. yeah uh, yeah <laughs> that makes sense to me um, huh what what's your um what's your relationship to like Hollywood and films now? Are you are you still watching a lot of stuff or Oh no. He's asked the question. <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> Mainly I'm I'm curious if you've seen um if you saw Tarantino's movie cuz I think that what is it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh yeah. Is I that read the book. Yeah, that's in the book, yeah. Yeah, that's in the book. Oh, but... is it? That's even the title of the intro, isn't it? I hated that movie with a passion. Although <laughs> I wasn't bored, I'll give it. I'll give him that. Um, but I, I, I was. I, I don't want to say I was shocked, but I was. I was pretty repelled by not so much the brutality it showed towards women, particularly brutalization of women, the torture of women, but. But knowing that that film had been embraced and praised, and just uh, I was I, I was surprised by that because it felt so vicious and unpleasant. A movie mm. um, I wrote about, it, of course, because it's another layer of the onion. I mean, uh, as the Manson, uh, the Charles Watson murders that Manson got blamed for are being framed for are being reevaluated. Uh, in certain circles, out comes this movie that does a, a whole other twist. First of all, mm. it, it reinforces the man, the narrative, the book, the whatever, the official narrative, but it does this weird twist where it actually does create an alternative reality in which Sharon Tate doesn't get killed. And in fact, it's a revenge fantasy. It's a Hollywood revenge mm. fantasy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tarantino gets to save Polanski right. from tragedy by brutally having his movie stars, Leonardo and Brad, brutally murder two women and one guy. Uh, so that's just, I mean, it's so, so, um, I don't know, it seemed like a great metaphor. That, yeah. And, and Tarantino yeah. defended Polanski as well in other ways for, for his, for Polanski's uh, crimes. Tarantino's gone on record to defend him. Um, so I think there's some evidence there of you know inside messaging messaging as well yeah as, well there's that the the mamas and papas scene too where they play the mamas and papas song seems like it's indicating some knowledge of of some connection there too i think mm. all right i didn't i didn't i didn't remember that i can't remember when i saw the movie but. there's like a demo version of california dreaming and it's just yeah. a, a scene of sharon tate just walking around like going to randomly see her own film it just seems to indicate some sort of insider knowledge there right and that scene that i remember that scene because that series of scenes because they see uh, tarantino seemed to be presenting sharon tate like she was absurdly innocent and sweet yeah that she, seemed like a moron to me uh, and so I wondered if that because that's what Polanski's always you know uh, everybody's always how wonderful she was so sweet she was right. so perfect she was so innocent mm. that's got to be part of the narrative right and right the more innocent the victim the more horrifying the crime the more demonic the, the criminals 
Right. And, but, yeah. But you don't, you yeah. don't marry Polanski and end up living in that climate if you're a sweet, innocent darling who's never smoked a joint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that just doesn't add up. Plus, her, her, her family's military as well, so I don't right. know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's always struck me as a, an important, maybe not that important, but a relevant link in the, in the whole thing to some extent. Um, I, think it, I think it is. I mean, I think McGowan, he could be accused of overstating it as if mm -hmm. oh, somebody had military background, that, that ding, ding, you know. But yeah. on the other hand... The military, it's a pretty tight organization. Um, and there does seem to be a tradition of, I don't, I don't want to say sacrificing one's own children because that would be putting it too starkly, but the children of the military, from what I've understood, are fair game. In a way, you, you'd think it would be the opposite, right? That was, yeah. Be protected, but I don't think so. My, my impression is it's, it is that if you're born into a military family, that those kind of programs of MKUltra and whatnot, you're more likely to end up a victim of them than less, hmm. I think. Yeah, was Streber, uh, was his father military? I, I... Uh, his uncle was. Um, yeah. His family, his family was a power family. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit murky, Streber's thing, his past there, but yes, he definitely had the connections. Yeah, I remember being, yeah, being struck by that a bit too. Um, the, the the way you, you mentioned that, yeah, Manson didn't actually kill anyone, but he's sort of like the face of serial killers. Um, it's, it's sort of mind-boggling because <laughs> i mean he certainly was a, a criminal um yeah he, he may have he probably did kill people and i think he definitely killed one person but I mean, yeah he didn't kill anyone that night mm -hmm. right and his killings as far as i could tell were drug deranged or drug related or right organized crime kind of killings not occulty serial killings. right yeah so that's he seemed more like a sort of a just a career like criminal um, yeah, who wanted to make it in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Explosive combination. Yeah. Um, yeah. What? Well, one thing I say in the book is he's the wrong class. You know, just to mm. boil it down and oversimplify it, but just to recontextualize it. He might have been the case of somebody from the wrong class supposed to be a grunt you know working in the trenches bringing drugs and kids and women and whatever it was to the celebrities uh, but he wanted to level up no no that doesn't happen right yeah and i, I guess he was doing doing that for a while too mm -hmm. at least with uh you know like uh, dennis wilson and stuff like that but it seemed like he might be able to level up yeah but I yeah mean, yeah, but no. No, but yeah. <laughs> then he was in the studio for like six hours, and what was the producer's name that he actually supposedly thought was living at the... Uh, Terry Mouse. Terry yeah. Mouse. Yeah. 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 Um, I thought maybe before the end of all this, uh, <laughs> we could talk a little bit about... Because um, uh, toward the end of the book, you get into superhero stuff comic books um mm -hmm. and the links between that and uh i guess for lack of a better term the sort of like epstein science network uh 
Could you talk a little bit about um, how maybe like Marvel or people like that are somehow involved in that um, that underworld, or I guess it's not, you know, maybe it's the overworld. The superculture. Yeah, right. Um, probably not, actually. Those kind of questions that I'm worst at because then I have to try and pull back into memory things that I've I see. written the book to forget all about. <laughs> right. So, tell me what you remember and maybe we can riff off it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, funding of um, all of these various sciences and something that stuck out to me was um, pulling things back to like genetic manipulation. Um, yeah, yeah, creating superheroes. So that was one of the central things in that connection right. to Epstein. So it was the, the sex, wasn't it? The right. science yeah. of entertainment exchange. I can't remember, but it was, yeah. it was how does this exchange going on? Which, and of course, we're, Mark, we're probably hit peak superhero now, so I don't know. But anyway, yeah. the Marvel Universe was going strong for a few years with Tony Stark at its center, who of course is, is the techno genius of, mm. of all the characters they could pick. He's, he's the closest to Elon Musk or yeah. not quite right. Jeffrey Epstein, but even he's closer to Jeffrey Epstein than any of the other characters. Mm. He's the corporate, uh, he's the head of a corporation and he's a, he's a scientific genius and an inventor and he's a playboy and he's an alcoholic. And so, yeah, interesting that he got picked and Robert Downey Jr. obviously brought that character to life. Right. Great actor. I used to love Robert Downey Jr. before he got sucked into that world. Um, mm. and, the, and the science and entertainment exchange uh, is to do with, it got my attention because it's to do with how the, um, they try and give some verisimilitude to the, the superhero fantasy movies mm -hmm. by getting scientists to come in and advise them. Well, if, you know, Thor's hammer really did exist, this is kind of how it would be configured or Dr. Manhattan on Watchmen, you know, this, this would be the best way to represent Dr. Manhattan. And this would be the sign, you know, what? It, yeah. and all these, any good sci-fi movie, well, actually a good one doesn't have any of that stuff because it's so either boring or absurd but anyway <laughs> if they have it they try and make it scientifically credible mm -hmm. so there there's this this exchange thing that that works on that that's its function is to recruit scientists to make the movies more convincing it seems like a two-way thing though because the science um, the scientific uh well, there is a wing anyway, and I think it is part of the same thing. Uh, they're talking about how to genetically modify human beings to turn them into superheroes. So then they're recontextualizing science using mm. superhero myths to do it. So it's a two-way thing, hence exchange. Right. right. And, and the reason Epstein comes in is that he was, not many people know, but before he was taken out of the picture or sent off to... Dubai or wherever he is, uh, they, um, uh, he, he was giving loads and loads of his money from sex trafficking, no doubt, to MIT and to the Edge Foundation uh, for this kind of research. And he himself personally believed in genetically uh, engineering the Superman, presumably hoping that he would be one of the first. Maybe he is, for all we know. Maybe he's blind hmm. and in the breakaway civilization somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So it's very dark. I mean, that's the too long, don't read version. The superhero myth, it probably had these, it did have these dark roots to begin with, as I touch on it. I think I edited that stuff out, but that Superman as invented by Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel was a Jewish revenge fantasy, mm. essentially a Jewish empowerment fantasy. Um, and there's great irony, of course, because the Nazis were the pioneers of the Ubermensch, so this, the mm. idea of the Superman. So it's like the Jews took it for themselves. Uh, right. yeah. Gentile, obviously Clark Kent wasn't Jewish. Uh, right. so, so that was the beginning of the superhero mythos recently anyway, in this last century. And uh, so there is a dark undercurrent already, but what I'm looking at in the book is it's, it's way dark, actually, that the superhero uh, this is this transhumanist dream of total power and total control. Mm. Uh, and there's something... My, I can't have this theory that it's the cryptocracy wanting to come out. They want to create a narrative in which they can be the heroes and the saviors for obvious reasons, while at the same time being terrifying. Because you think about a superhero, uh, it would, if, if they were real and they entered our reality, it would be terrifying. Like Rilke said, every angel is terrible because uh, it, it would be so incomprehensible and so overwhelming. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to think that they're also like people who are these like, you know, un unstable things um, to have like that kind of power. It's and I guess maybe Marvel gets into that dynamic a little bit. I I don't know, like like uh, the responsibility thing, you know, of, yeah, yeah, of these powers. Um, I grew up on that stuff. Right. I loved it. I used to love it. I used to say that. I used to quote that all the time. Great, comes <laughs> great responsibility. Um, but you know, my theory now, and it's in seen and not seen, is is that I think we touched on this already. But the, the germ of corruption is there in the beginning, and that it's the nature of um, the empowerment fantasies being sourced in the formative experience of trauma and dissociation um, that means that they always have, first of all, they're dissociated, the fantasies, the superhero fantasies, the fantasies of empowerment, they're dissociated. So that's, that's bad, number one. And number two, maybe it's directly related in some way, they seem to have an element of re revenge in them. Mm. If you're fantasizing of being a superhero because you've been disempowered, well, it's not just you want to get escape, you also want to get your own back. Mm. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, and that is more or less in maybe not all of their origin stories, but like enough that it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's important and an important part of the mythology. Um, well, there's usually some, there's certainly almost always trauma, usually some yeah. tragedy, and then sometimes there's the element of avenging the Avengers. Mm. <laughs> uh, right. By bringing justice, I mean, that's, in the Marvel universe, revenge and justice are synonymous. Interesting. There's no distinction. Right. It it always strikes me how um, so sometimes, especially in the in the Batman universe, um, in like the Dark Knight trilogy, the villains are often really like kind of like pointing out actual society, and then they introduce this like really horrible. Um, horrible like means of 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 showing this like a nuclear bomb or something but um they, they seem like very very useful propaganda tools in that way like um 
Well, that, yeah. that part, I imagine that most people know really is that, that there's so much military hardware in these superhero movies mm. and often CIA good guys. Right. But they're pretty <laughs> overt militaristic propaganda. Well, that's another case of double think, I think, that people, I mean, kids, of course, don't have the discernment unless their parents are responsible enough to give it them young. And then there's all these adults who grew up on that stuff and they don't care that it's propaganda. Right. Because <laughs> right? it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, you wonder if they're like, is there... <laughs> Is there a way to interact with this? Because it's sort of it's have a way to interact with this stuff that is both aware of its real purpose and also like you're able to get like I feel like after a certain point of knowing like what's going on. I'm not sorry, is it? Consuming maybe. Oh yeah, I because I dodged Dave's question, didn't I? Do I still <laughs> um yeah, I do still watch stuff. I'm currently watching Deutschland, you know, that series, Deutschland 83, 86, 89. I watch a lot of stuff with subtitles as if that's somehow going to be less propagandistic. <laughs> yeah. and, and I said to my wife yesterday, you know, I don't really like this show. I don't mind watching it because it's very well made and it's beautifully the set design and the costumes and all that. I like period stuff. But it's about spies. And it's all fun and games, and it's it's sexy and glamorous, and uh, and it's it's using real history, like the Berlin Wall coming down and terrorist action. And I said it's immoral. It's just immoral, like to make that world look in any way attractive or appealing. Mm. Mm. And you know, part of me is thinking of these these children being trafficked and raped and tortured, and what's all embedded in that world, to the extent that it is. Um, and so then I'm feeling this or this repulsion that they're presenting, a, they're concealing some hideous reality uh, and making uh, it glamorous. Uh, so hopefully mm -hmm. that that kind of sensitivity, and I'm not saying I got indignant or anything, I was just becoming aware I don't really like this show. Ho I'm hoping that just as I increase my discernment and my awareness, I will lose capacity to enjoy more and more, and more media, so then I'll be fucked. Because that's the only way I can see giving it up. I, you know, I, yeah. I just find it so helpful to relax in front of my computer with my wife and watch stuff. I'm so tired at the end of each day. I know that's the excuse everyone makes. Uh, and I am concerned about being, as I've described myself in the past, an irredeemable hypocrite who writes about the toxicity of his culture while still imbibing it. Uh, I am concerned about these things, but um, all I can say is I'm currently still making this trade-off that I know it's bad for me, but it does help me relax. I don't pretend it's research anymore because I've written the book and I've finished the book. Um, yeah. I just try and be... I, more and more discerning yeah, mm. about what what I watch. Yeah. I watch less violence, for example. Yeah, I think that, I think that is likely the healthy way to go with that. Um, I gave up superhero movies as well. I mean, yeah. I it's not like I I don't believe in 
uh, there's a certain kind of discipline I don't think works, let's put it that way. So I, I didn't say I'm not going to watch any more superhero movies, but just I think halfway through Black Panther, it was just like, I, I am so sick of being dumbed down. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, back when there was movie theaters, I guess to a certain extent that, that sort of trans experience is, mm. is a way to es- escape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like, I, don't, I mean, I'm not sure if this is true. A lot of the power has sort of come out of those those big propagandistic uh, military superhero movies until yeah. people are able to, to go into that, um, that like theater experience again. Well, no, I think we're going in an opposite direction, aren't we? Uh, we're going into Netflix, into the smartphone, what I call the smart new world into the microchip in the brain, up and, you know, uh, total immersive escapist entertainment 24-7 while we work uh, uh, exercise bikes at home and therefore generate enough power to actually be able to watch the entertainment without creating a carbon footprint. I think that's the future of the zombie masses while the elite, you know, get to enjoy what's left of nature. Oh, yeah, that's grim. But I also, you know, I don't think that's uh, unlikely <laughs> by any stretch. Um, especially, uh, yeah, it's two or more cultures sort of as, you know, yeah, an elite sort of culture and then everybody else. <laughs> it's in H2Ls, isn't it? The Morlocks. I mean, the, the, the Illoy and the Morlocks. Have you read that, Time Machine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a while ago, but yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it will come to pass, just that that's the trajectory we're on. Mm. Um, and so for me, the trajectory I'm on, which I just referred to briefly in 16 Mounts of Hell, my personal exit and the rough draft I have of it is <clears throat> is is, uh, is really quite predictable is back to nature farming self-sufficiency gradual movement towards self-sufficiency uh mm. thinking you know have a room for the technology that's quarantined uh it padlocks on it so <laughs> i have to really want to use it <laughs> yeah and then the rest of the everything else is nature and organic and you know i don't it's not to go to what to another extreme i don't want to do that but just recognize that only you know, only one path really leads to wholesome, healthy, living, embodied life. Mm. The other is going somewhere really, really dark, and uh, I don't. I definitely don't want to go there. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder how many people really, really do, or, or if anyone wants to go where where it seems we might be heading. Um, Elon Musk seems to right. be right hmm. well. I mean, who knows if they really believe it? It might be another case. Of, if they can pretend to believe it, then others will go along. I don't know. Hmm. But it seems like people do. I mean, faith in technology is, it goes pretty deep. Hmm. Even, even today, you know, with all of this, all this woke culture and QAnon on the other side, um, People still seem to have this innate belief that the technology is somehow going to provide a solution. Mm. Yeah, it does not 
I yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, I think it provides uh, uh, convenience. Does do that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It seems to be part of the problem, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I was thinking we could end on the UFO because mm. that's something I predicted, and not I'm not alone. I'm not saying I'm being prophetic, but I've I've explored that. So yeah, yeah, let's yeah, totally. If 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 the only way I can see to re uh, regenerate the faith in technology or to to inject into the technological fantasy of salvation new life would be with something transcendental mm. like the ufo so i'm still waiting <laughs> right they are teasing it uh quite yeah. a bit every every few weeks it seems like now um really i mean you know the, <laughs> just the the disclosure yeah. uh the well, I, mean, I, I say really just because I haven't noticed it in a few weeks, but I definitely uh, see well, yeah. periodically uh, Washington Post, New York Times. And yeah, Time was... I guess if it's on the cover of Time, then we'll know it's right. Like, <laughs> right. Alien of the Year. Yeah. Yeah. What was that most recent thing? We talked about it recently, Dave, with somebody. The Israeli, like, de- oh. uh, yeah, yeah, defense, yeah. Minister of Defense or something. Yeah, an, an ex. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, that I did hear about that. Unless it was another guy. No, I think it was that one because there was a guy in Canada, but he yeah, right. credible compared to this guy. Yeah, but of course, credible. I have to put credible in quotes because right. anyone who's read Prisoner Infinity would know that was a plug at the end there. <laughs> uh, that there seems to be a vested interest in the powers that for the powers that be to to you know create this belief. Mm-hmm. So just because he's saying that right. doesn't mean he believes it. Right, yeah. I I got the sense that, and I don't know how I got the sense, but I, I, sort, of, I sort of felt, I don't really like buy it. Like, I don't even think he believes it. I just think that he's saying this for, you know, whatever purpose. He was he was the guy who was doing about galactic civilizations. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Federation. Yeah. He went. Yeah, he went all the way, like oh. to the point where it's like we can join a, yeah, like a a, a society. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, yeah, this this particular like movement of disclosure does seem like an initiative, and I think tying it back to David Ike too. Ike has often talked about Project Bluebeam, of this like holographic uh, disclosure almost. It's what if he's right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been around a long time. I remember in the in the eighties when I was twenty, I was talking about this. Um, uh, so yeah, it makes you wonder what what they're waiting for if that's the plan. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's like having to set the stage, have everything in place. Well, I mean, one simple element I would say is. Uh, liminality that liminality has to be increased to a point where people really are so confused so emotionally triggered and charged disoriented don't know what to believe which way's up which way's down so a combination of state of panic and disorientation with a desperate need for some kind of guidance well those two things do go together don't they um then they're they're open you know really open to to believing anything if it offers the hope that they desperately want to cling mm. to. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, any should we any other last final thoughts for the for the episode? Any last questions, Dave? I think I do think UFOs are a nice place to to end because they are kind of a symbolic, a very nice symbolic encapsulation of some of this stuff. Um, I think they also encapsulate because I like to end on a more positive note. They also encapsulate this unfortunate tendency to look outward for a solution mm. Mm. and that but that they are whatever it is does it does mirror something even if it's a counterfeit it's a an imitation and a copy so there is something about whatever it is including the or especially the ufo because it's a symbol in certain <laughs> sense jung wrote about as a symbol of the human soul um which is why it would be easy to mistake it why it would be a trap if you because if you look for your soul outside of you, unless it's to, you know, whip down into your body, but that would be very different from seeing a UFO. Um, it it can be an opportunity, I think, to, um, well, anyway, whether it's an opportunity or not, that the the solution would be, I think, whatever we're looking and whatever is spellbinding us is to is to is to turn 180 degrees and actually switch the focus internally mm. um and that 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 we do have something with us all of the time that tells us what's what we tell us what's hot what's cold uh you know what's wet what's dry what's up what's down it's called our body dude <laughs> like it's right it's right here you know <laughs> uh it's waiting for us just to tune in I had I was I, I reversed Timothy Leary's thing a while back. It was tune out. Uh, what, what did he say? Turn off, turn on, tune in, drop out. Yeah. So turn off, tune out, drop in. <laughs> As in drop into the body, uh, and that that I think is well. That's my message of hope. I mean, it may not sound like much, but. Uh, as not, the more we can refer to our body, there's an intelligence in the body, there's a guidance system in the body, which is non-technological. Unless we're going to start thinking about the body as technology, and I don't think we need to go there, but it's far more sophisticated than any technology that's ever been yeah. designed. Yeah. Uh, it works perfectly if, if it's in harmony. And part of how it functions is it guides us through through the unknown, whatever's going on outside of us. Hmm. so so yeah I'd, I'd rather end on something like that be it ever so mundane but uh yeah just the, the solution all the answers we're looking for are just right here in, in our in our flesh and in our blood hmm. awesome yeah yeah it's perfect <laughs> uh yeah thank you so much for coming on i thought it was a great conversation and so people can if they want to get the book they can find it where uh, any of the books it, uh, at, at my website auticulture.com a-u-t-i culture and they can also contact me there or just by emailing me jason with a u at protonmail.com i always like to hear from people uh 16 maps of hell i'm just packing up hardbacks now uh, it looks like i'm gonna have very few hardbacks still still left so probably that won't be available. I don't know how when this is going to go up, but it might not even be available by the time people hear this. 
Now there's quite a lot more paperbacks, so they'll still be able to get that. Um, I can't, unfortunately, I don't have any of my other books, so they just have to go. They can still go to my site to find out about them, but they'll end up somewhere evil like Amazon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I can't prevent that. Um, uh, po- the weekly podcast is The Limitalist. And um, I do uh, weekly meetings on Zoom uh, that not anyone can participate in, but there are ways and means to enter the inner. <laughs> cool that sounds great uh thanks again and yeah thank you so much for coming on yeah amazing thanks dave and thanks ben i I've yeah. enjoyed it a lot great yeah. all right, all right.